Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that your word is final. When you said it was finished, it was finished. And we can rise, we can walk confidently in your strength and in your peace, Lord. So we just take comfort in that this morning. And as Kevin talked about earlier, it's been a great weekend of thinking about your Holy Spirit. And so we just ask that your spirit would come this morning, bring peace to our minds. Let us hear the words that you've prepared for us this morning, Lord. We want to be salt and light to this world, and we know that it's only you that can do that through us. We'd fail miserably if that was up to us, Lord. So may you be seen through us, may you be heard from us. May we impact people that we encounter at work, in our families, in our friends. And we just ask that they would see something in us that they so desperately want to have for themselves. We thank you for all that you're doing in the lives of the people in this church and all of those around us. And we just ask this in your name. Amen. Yeah, grab a seat. <laughs> you guys are well trained. We don't even have to say it anymore. You guys, you guys know the routine. <laughs> um, so we've got a few announcements this morning. So we've got some really cool stuff coming up as always. So um, this Tuesday, we've got our prayer and fellowship night from 6 to 8. Super powerful time of fellowship, food, and prayer. That's about as good as it gets, right? So um, March 24th, really looking forward to the worship night here at WCC. The time on that, Paul? Uh, 6.30. If it starts at 7, you'll be here early and you'll still have a great time in the half an hour before. Um, March 29th, Good Friday service, and March 31st, Easter. So just a reminder, we're changing things up a little bit. Easter Sunday, two services, because we are praying and anticipating that this place is going to be full of people seeking Jesus. So two services, 9 o'clock and 11 o'clock. The 10 o'clock will not be an option. If you want to come and stay for both, that's awesome too. And then last announcement, um, Awana uh, has their time coming up at the end of the year. The kids really commit to memorizing a lot of scripture. They put in a lot of hard work. They earn points throughout the year, and then they get to pick prizes. We need prizes, right, Jennifer? So if anybody would like to help donate some things, there's a QR code in the back with some more information. Let's go to the Word. Um, so today's scripture is going to be Mark 8, verses 1 through 21. Oh, Junior Church, you guys can go. So Mark 8, verses 1 through 21, I'm going to be reading from the CSB translation. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have, he asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said these were to be served as well. 
They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Del Delmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and went to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves what they did not have, that they did not have any bread. Aware of this, he said to them, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they told him. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets full of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And he said to them, don't you understand yet? This is the word of the Lord. Please stand. All right, so we're, uh, we're talking about bread today. Uh, who likes to eat? I, I mean, I think every hand should probably be up, right? I, if you don't know anything about me, at least you got to know this. I love food. I am a, a foodie. I, um, I, I just eat all the time. And so you might say, no, you don't, Kevin. Don't, don't lie. No, I do. Uh, I love food. I just, I eat until I'm like overly full. It's, it's actually, some, sometimes it's actually a problem. I've got to uh, genuinely speaking, confess to the Lord about sometimes. But I love food. I love to eat. Uh, and I love good tasting food. And we all do, don't we? And we especially love to eat when we're with family or friends and we're celebrating and different things of that nature. And it's hard. I, we've, I've talked to some of you especially about this, uh, this, what's called a biblical discipline or a spiritual discipline of fasting. Um, now, in your flesh, you know, in your, in your natural man or your natural woman, do, do you enjoy fasting? No. <laughs> it's really not enjoyable to deprive yourself of food. Why? Because we are physical creatures. We long for substance, right? We long to have a full-feeling stomach. And it's, it bothers us when we're not full. It bothers us when we, when we can't fulfill our flesh, when we can't fulfill that longing to be full. And we see in this text here a number of situations, and we're going to see from a couple other texts as well, that people in general are obsessed with food. And so that's our lesson today, is that how can we be even more obsessed with food? Um, no, of course not. Um, how do we understand correctly the teachings of Jesus and his work in our world and in our lives even today? And so we're going to dive into this. Uh, he's, he he, of course, does a miracle involving food, and then he does a lot of teaching as well uh, related to food. And so we're going we're gonna to dive into this. Our outline this morning is uh, three, a simple three-point three outline here. His concern for people's physical condition first. Uh, we see that clearly from the text. His concern for people's physical condition. Secondly, we're going to focus on Jesus' frustration with the religious culture. And then uh, lastly, Jesus' concern for people's spiritual condition. Uh, in the last part of our chapter. Honestly, some of the, this is going to bother some of you. I'm only going to spend a few minutes on the first 10 verses. 
Um, we just got done last month talking about the story of when Jesus fed over 5,000 people. If, you're, if you remember, just a few weeks ago, you can read about it in Mark chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 30. We have the story of how Jesus fed 5,000 people. Very similar story. So we're going we're to go through the first 10 verses, but we're not going to focus um, a lot on them. So let's read again the first 10 verses and make a, make a few points, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll go on. So again, the emphasis here is on Jesus' concern for people's physical condition. Starting in verse 1, in those days there was again a large crowd, right? Always a large crowd with Jesus. And they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've already stayed with me three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way and some of them have come a long distance. So we already start to see Jesus' deep compassion for people and for their physical condition, their frailty. He's concerned about their physical well-being. He's concerned for their health. And for some of you this morning, maybe this is the very thing, and maybe even the only thing that the Holy Spirit of God wants to impress upon your heart, that Jesus cares about your physical condition. He cares about your well-being. That's really important for us. Sometimes we, we overemphasize our spiritual condition and we don't talk enough about how Jesus cares about you here and now. He doesn't just want you to be with him forever in heaven. He wants that, and that was the primary purpose of his coming, as we're going to see today. But he also cares for you now. He's with you in your physical struggles. He's with you when you're hungry. He's with you when you're sick, when you're not feeling quite right, when you're depressed or whatever your physical condition is. He's with you in that, and he cares for you. That's really important for us to understand. And Jesus here, he has compassion on the crowd. He doesn't want to send them away hungry. He wants to provide for them. And that's the other thing that we see. It's not only that he cares, but his compassion leads him to action. And so what does he do? Uh, we continue in verse 4. His disciples answered, Well, where can we get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? Well, Jesus says, well, how many loaves do you have? This sounds very similar to just last, last couple chapters, right? And the last feeding of the, of the thousands. Well, we have seven, they said. So he commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. Uh, oh, sorry, they also had a few small fish, and after he had blessed them, he said that they were to be served as well. Now, if you're like me, don't you want to know how and when the bread got multiplied and the fish? It, 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 doesn't that always, you know, just, when was it? Was it when, was he, was it when he was breaking it and he just kept breaking it? Or, or was it he gave, you know, some to the disciples and then it, it multiplied in the disciples' baskets? Like, I mean, when did he multiply the bread? I, I don't know. I, I wish there, that detail was in there just just because I'm, I'm like that. I'm weird. Um, I like those details. But either way, it doesn't matter how it happened. Jesus fed 4,000 people with seven little loaves of bread. That's physically impossible, right? He, he continues, they ate and they were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there and he dismissed them. Then he went into the boat and with his disciples. And so... <laughs> And, and we're not going to, some of you are like, oh, okay, what's the significance of the seven baskets? What's the significance of the 12 baskets? A lot of, there's a lot of pr proposals out there. That's not the main point of the story. Seven, number of perfection, yeah, maybe that's it. Twelve, 
12 tribes of Israel, 12 disciples. There's all sorts of different significances to these numbers. But Jesus, I think the point that he's making is that when I want to show compassion, I am able to show it to the full. My grace is more than sufficient. Amen, right? It's more than sufficient for our spiritual depravity, and it's more than sufficient for our physical needs as well. When God wants to pour out, nothing can stop him. He's limited by no factors. And I, I think it's just so beautiful that we have a Savior and a God who cares deeply for us and is able, more than able, to meet those needs. So we rejoice in that. We rejoice in the fact that Jesus is concerned for people, for us, and our physical frailty and our physical condition and our well-being. Secondly, uh, Jesus, Jesus was frustrated with the religious culture. And political culture, we can, we can say, as, as, as we see. Starting in verse 11, the Pharisees, there we go, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, demanding of him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to this generation. Then he left them, got into the boat, and went to the other side. First, notice in verse 11, the intentionality of the Pharisees here. Look at the language of this verse. There's four things here, right? It says that they came to him. This was an intentional act of them coming. They argued, they demanded to test him. These, these people are coming against Jesus intentionally with an agenda to frustrate Jesus, to test him, to trap him, to trick him, to to get at him. And think about it. How often have you experienced being genuinely and regularly targeted by the most powerful and influential group of people in our culture? How, how many times has that been your experience? For some of you, maybe once, but probably not. Most of us have never experienced that. This is what Jesus had to deal with almost daily in his ministry. How often do we see in the scriptures this happening? Being tested, people coming against him, pushing against him, prodding him, pressing him in different ways. So I think we just need to step back and just appreciate as a, as a man what Jesus had to go through. Now, he's God as well, right? He is fully human and he's fully divine, which is such a mystery. It's a beautiful mystery. And so in his divinity, of course, he can handle it. He's able to handle it. He has that capacity. He has that ability. And even we in Christ can handle that. And he has, over, over history, given the church the ability to face incredible opposition and the grace to overcome it with boldness, with conviction, and with faith. So Jesus, being a man, though, also had to deal with this. That's difficult. Can we just appreciate that for a moment? That Jesus not only bore our sins on the cross, which is the ultimate expression of having to deal with difficulty, but he had to deal with the day-in and day-out annoyances and wretchedness of, of human condition. And, and look at how distressing the situation was to Jesus. Look at verse 12. It says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. This, this is the only time that this word's used in the New Testament. To, to sigh deeply. 
Um, it, it means an agonizing sigh. It's no small thing here. The only other time that it's used in the Bible historically was in the Greek Septuagint. It's the, uh, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it's, it's found in the book of Lamentations. And if you know anything about the book of Lamentations, it's, it's a book that Jeremiah wrote um, to lament the destruction of Jerusalem. He was, he was beside himself, as, as the whole Jewish people were, over the destruction of Jerusalem. Let me just read some of the verses, and then we'll get to verse 4 of chapter 1, where we see the same word. He, he, he's lamenting. How she sits alone, the city that was once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow. The princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor. She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheek. There is no one to offer her comfort, not one from all of her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile, following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. The roads to Zion, that's Jerusalem, Mount Zion, mourn. For no one comes to the appointed festivals. All her gates are deserted. Her priests groan. Which is the word. That's the context in which Jesus is feeling over the situation with the Pharisees here. Over the spiritual condition of the people of his day. It was as if Jerusalem was completely destroyed, and it was no small destruction. We have not experienced this. Now, if we lived you know, hundreds of years ago, back in the time of you know, intense war on our soil, we would be able to appreciate it this much. But what the Jewish people had to go through was an incredible and overwhelming slaughtering. And then, who, was, who survived was deported off to Babylon. Oh, and by the way, that was after the siege in which people were, were eating their own children and, and doing awful things. And it was just a terrible situation. That's the situation in which Jesus is saying he's sighing deeply. That's the comparable that we have in the Greek. So he sighs deeply in his spirit over the fact that the Pharisees are coming to argue and demand, why does this... And, and, and so Jesus says, why does this generation demand a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given. There, there's three things I want to bring out here, as well as in a similar account in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12. First of all, why a sign? See, Jesus knows everything, right? I mean, you can't hide anything from Jesus. He knows the answer to his own question. He's being, he's being rhetorical, facetious here, right? He's asking a question really from emotional frustration. He knows why the generation demands a sign. They wanted to somehow trap Jesus in what? he would say or what he would do, as Mark said, to test him. Or in some cases, perhaps it could have been that, they were so, that people were so skeptical of Jesus that they refused to open up their hearts to him when they saw some wondrous sign. Unless they saw a wondrous sign, I should say. So the problem is not, is not actually seeing a sign, right? Nowhere does God say that signs are bad. Actually, on the contrary, God often does signs and wonders in the miraculous. It's a beautiful thing. If some of you have actually experienced some signs and wonders in some ways. And that's a beautiful thing. We, re we rejoice in that. We give glory to God. We praise him for that. The problem comes when we demand a sign. When we say, I'm not going to believe unless you dot, dot, dot. Whatever that is. 
That's when the problem comes in. When we start looking up to God and we say, unless this happens, I'm not going to believe. Because that's a problem. Because that shows a spirit and a heart of skepticism, unbelief. A heart that does not honor God. A heart that's not ready to receive his grace. A proud heart. We don't see it here directly, although it's implied, but in Matthew's gospel in chapter 12, we see how Jesus feels about people demanding signs. In chapter 12, verse 39, after some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them. This is, a, we think, a different situation. He answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. And so, church, we've got to guard our hearts from that kind of a spirit with God. With that kind of a, well, God, if you this, or if you don't do that, or if you, anything that starts with if in relation to prayer with God is really dangerous. We've just got to be thought, we just have to be thoughtful about it. We've got to put ourselves in the place of created in light of the Creator. He's the one who decides the rules. He's the one who has, has done everything for us. Not only giving us life, but then giving us grace upon grace upon grace. And then he continues in Matthew chapter 12. He says, no sign will be given to it, this generation that is, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. What, what, what is that sign? What is that sign about? It's, about? it's about redemption. He says, I will give you a sign. Now, now and on one hand, Jesus gave them lots of signs, didn't he? He gave them signs all the time. Every single day, it seemed like. He's healing people. He's multiplying bread into, to feed thousands of people. Jesus is constantly giving them signs. But he said, but there, there's one sign that really matters. There's one sign that's above all the signs. That's the one that I'm giving you. That's the sign that is the master of signs. <laughs> In other words, this is what he's saying. And that sign is the sign of the prophet Jonah that I, Jesus says, will die and I'll be in the ground for three days, but then that ground is going to just open up and I'm going to come out. Because death can't hold Jesus. Death has no mastery over Jesus. God is the supreme one. There is nothing, Satan himself, death itself, sin itself, nothing can touch God and prevail. God always prevails. And so Jesus gives them that sign graciously. So in our story, um, then they end up getting in a boat and they leave. And so point number two, once again, Jesus is frustrated with the religious culture. And I wonder how Jesus would respond or react to the religious culture today. I don't know how fruitful it is for us to meditate on that or dwell on that very long, so we won't, but, but it is a question for us to ponder. And I think it's a good question for us to just talk about with, within our own circles of friends, and certainly the leadership of this church needs to tackle that question. How might Jesus feel or think about the religious culture today? Uh, lastly, I want us to look at this one. And... Um, 
we're going we're to spend probably the most amount of time on this one, and then I also want us to, to spend a decent time before we uh, celebrate the Lord's table. But Jesus is concerned for spiritual, people's spiritual condition. So now, they, they leave the Pharisees, they go to the other side, and verse 14, the disciples had forgotten to take bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. Then he gave them strict orders. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They were discussing among themselves that they did not have any bread. So, so here are the disciples, genuine oversight, right? I mean, we can kind of cut them some slack, right? They, they just, there's, there's this incredible miracle that Jesus did. I mean, like, wow, that's incredible. They must have given out the, they must have gave out the leftover baskets because they obviously didn't pack them. Um, so they, they just see this miracle. Jesus then deals this intense conversation with the religious leadership and they jump on the boat and, oh, whoops, we only packed a, we only packed a loaf of bread. And what are they concerned about? After all that that's going on, they're concerned about a little a loaf of bread, not having quite enough to eat. Isn't, isn't this like us? Come on. Is anybody else here put themselves in this story? And can you relate? I, I, right? I mean, come on. This is so like me. I'm, this is exactly where my headspace would be. I would be there in the, in the boat with these disciples. Like, Andrew, you idiot. Why didn't you take two or three more loaves of bread? What's wrong with you? You know? And, and, and they're probably bickering to each other about, why didn't you pack the bread? I thought you, it was your turn. You know, acting like children. Because that's the way we act, right? But a genuine oversight, not a big deal, especially after what Jesus just did. I mean, I don't think they need to be concerned about bread. I just don't think they need to be. Of course, we have this hindsight, understanding the full picture of who Jesus is, that they didn't quite fully have yet. But the next, the next couple of verses, 15 and 16 here, Right, they're so wrapped up with their own heads and their own hearts and their own wants and desires that they fail to see the bigger picture of what Jesus is talking about. He was trying to warn them about the religious and political leaders' perspectives. You had the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees and all the religious leaders that were, were saying one thing. You had Herod, right, the quote-unquote king, you know, who was, who was no friend of, of Israel, who was doing his own thing and was, was very evil. And we saw that a few weeks ago in the, with the story about John the Baptist. And so Jesus is trying to teach them this truth about be on guard. Notice the language. He strictly warned them. He gave them strict orders. This was no small, like, hey, guys, you know, a little pep talk here. You know, hey, just watch out for these guys. You just... Take note and be careful. All right, good, good chat. There was no small thing. This was, this was a strict orders. Like, hey, l- listen to me. Look at me. This is a big deal. Watch out. Right? He, he gets close to him. He leans in. He looks him in the eye and he's intense with them. He gives them strict orders. This was a big deal. And here they are. They're just like, oh, the bread. Oh, we only packed one loaf of bread. Right? But... There's three, there's three points of significance, I, I think, on the leaven that he talks about. I think that's a really significant illustration that he uses. Right? Now, I've literally only baked with leaven, I think, like twice in my life. Uh, well, I guess baking powder and baking soda are considered a leaven. But anyways, 
so I don't know a lot about it, but essentially, right, leaven is what? It's a small and seemingly insignificant agent that you, that you mix in to your dough. And what does it do? And then it, and then it rises. But you don't see it, right? You don't see it because it mixes in and it, and it permeates throughout the whole dough. And so Jesus is saying it's the small and the unseen agents that carry great weight. It was not the main substance of what you could see and observe about the Pharisees and Herod that they needed to worry about. It was their heart condition. It was that sinful, deceptive, hidden motives of their soul that, that they had to watch out for. They had to discern. They had to read between the lines. He's, he's saying, look, don't just take what they are for face value. Understand that there are underlying motives behind what they say and what they do. So I think that's part of the significance of the leaven. I think another part of the significance of leaven is that it's, uh, Paul uses it as an as a illustration for sin. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, this is what Paul says, 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6. So this is a really interesting situation that the Corinthian church had. So essentially, they, um, they, were, they were okay with, they weren't addressing this sinful situation that a man was sleeping with his stepmother. And they weren't addressing it. And they were even boasting about it. They were even saying, yeah, yeah, we're such a gracious church. We love everybody and we're not going to, you know, we're not going to, judge people. Do we have that kind of a spirit in our day and time today? And Paul says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? In other words, you tolerate just a little bit of sin, and whether it's a big sin or it's a small sin, you tolerate just a little bit. Church member, you tolerate just a little bit of lying in your soul, a little bit of seeds of anger, a little bit of unforgiveness, a little bit of slander, a little bit of gossip, you tolerate a little bit, guess what's going to happen to your soul pretty soon? Guess what's going to happen to the church pretty soon if we tolerate just a little bit of sin? It's no big deal. Just sweep it under the rug. It leavens the whole batch. So as soon as we detect even just a little bit of leaven, Paul says, hey, get it out of there. you get, you got to get it out of there because you, you don't want it mixing into the whole. That's the power of sin left unchecked. And then the, the third illustration of leaven that I think is very powerful is it's a representation of their spiritual blindness, both of Herod and the religious leaders. Specifically, he's, he's bringing them back to the time of the Exodus and Passover. If you remember, the Israelites were commanded to not eat leavened bread. It was to be unleavened. Why? Because they didn't have time to wait for the dough to rise, right? They had to be expectant of the Spirit of God so that when he said go, they got up and went. They had to wait in expectant faith in God's timing of redemption. When God said, now is the time, you get ready to go. See, they were too busy and focused on the Lord's redemption and liberation. They didn't have time to worry about their own personal agendas and preferences or comforts. And here we see in the text Jesus saying, watch out for these religious leaders that have their interests in mind first, not God's. Watch out for these people who, it's all about them. It's all about what they want in life. 
rather than the purposes of God, specifically God's redemption. Who is standing right in front of them? It's Jesus. Jesus is God's redemption. And they are opposing Jesus. And Jesus is like, watch out, because they're not, they're not in line. They're not like the Israelites in Exodus who were ready. They, had their, they ate with their sandals on their feet. They ate with their staff in their hand. They were ready to go. They didn't have time to wait for the, the leaven to mix in and rise and, and then bake it. And they had to eat unleavened, but they had to get ready to go. And so Jesus, I think, is alluding to that, as he often does. He often alludes to that. We'll see that a little bit later, too. Okay, we continue our story. Um, so they were discussing among themselves. <laughs> they didn't have any bread. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you understand or comprehend? Do you have hardened hearts? Do you have eyes and not see? Do you have ears and not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the loaves, the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you collect? Twelve, they said. When I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many baskets of pieces did you collect? Seven, they said. And, they, and he said to them, don't you understand yet? Jesus is grieved. He's frustrated here. He, he started out by being frustrated with the Pharisees and, and Herod as w- what they were supposed to be as spiritual leaders they were failing in. They, they saw things not the way that God sees them. They saw things very self-centeredly, self-righteously. But now he's frustrated by his disciples. He, I think in some ways Jesus expects to be misunderstood by the religious elite and the common people, and the political leaders who didn't follow him. But he surely thought and expected these men who have been following him for months and even years, that they should understand by now. And yet they didn't. So it's important for us to note that it's not always those who are out there who don't get it, or who fail to see, or who have hardened hearts who don't live out the commands in the heart of Jesus, who fail to grasp his values. It's not just those over there. It's us in the church sometimes that miss it, even though we have it. And it should be a, it should be a challenge to us to not flippantly go through motions. It should be a challenge for us to not take seriously the word of God when it's proclaimed, when it's read. It's a challenge for us to take seriously the opportunities that we have to gather with each other for the sharpening of each other in our faiths so that we can align ourselves with Jesus. And so what do we need to do? This is something that we talk about literally all the time. (laughs) Literally every single Sunday we talk about this. We need to constantly reform and refine our thinking to greater and greater conformity to the truth of God. And that is where we will discover God's heart, his will for us. I I love Romans chapter 12, verse 2, right? It says, be transformed. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And you might say, well, okay, that's great. Be transformed. How in the world? I can't, I'm not a transformer. I don't know how to transform. (laughs) What does that mean? How do we become transformed? How does God want to change us? By renewing our minds. And, and what is it that we renew our minds in? It's his, it's his truth. We don't renew our minds in the ways of the world. We don't renew our minds in the latest 
you know, articles on the internet or, you know, videos or movies or, or music. We don't renew our minds in the world. We renew our minds in the truth of God. And we have to make that commitment, church. We just have to be. We have to be like cows. Yeah, moo. <laughs> no, yeah, I, I was fascinated by this. And I think it's interesting because God in the Old Testament, and this is a theme a little bit for today, and really, you know, we see this often in the scriptures, that God takes a physical reality in the Old Covenant system, in the Old Testament, and he teaches a spiritual reality principle. I think it's, I think it's for no, uh, you know, I think it's for a very significant reason that God talked about the animals that chew the cud being clean. Because in a spiritual reality, he's saying, yeah, that, that's cleanness. It's to, it's, to, it's to be like the cow. And what, I, I was like, okay, I got to understand what, is that, what does that mean to chew the cud? It's kind of a gross thing, so forgive me, but like, let's talk about it. This is from Undeniably Dairy. I don't, you know, I, they, they seemed very smart, so I, I, I assume it's true. You can come up to me later if it's not. <laughs> it says this, it all goes back, so the question is, what is a cow's cud and how do they chew their cud? It all goes back to the fact that dairy cows are ruminants, meaning that part of their stomach, the rumen, is like a large fermentation vat. It contains bacteria that digest the cow's feed and converts it into energy and protein. Here's how it works. They're going to throw out some fancy terms, sorry. While fibrous feed, like hay, is good for cows, they have to break it down quite a bit so the rumen bacteria can digest it. When the cow first feeds her feed, she chews it just enough to moisten and swallow it. Then the bacteria in the first section of her stomach, the rumen, get to work softening the feed and the fiber. This softened food is called the cud, and it is sent back up to the cow's mouth where it is rechewed before going back down into her stomach to be fully digested. Yeah. <laughs> Praise the Lord for uh, making us only chew one time. <laughs> So chewing cud produces saliva, which is important for controlling rumen acidity. Too much acid hinders the growth and function of the rumen bacteria, especially those that digest fiber. But I think there's a spiritual principle there, isn't there? We renew our mind. We, we don't just read the scriptures once and then we're done. I have the scriptures memorized. No. Or I know the scriptures. I've read them before. That's, that's ridiculous. Those of us who, who are regularly in the scriptures... We experience this, don't we? We experience the nutrients every single time we get into the Word, and it's powerful in its effect. And it's significant, and it's, it's just so potent in us. So there's two base commands here that Jesus is getting at with his disciples. The first is that we must understand, or we must see, not have hardened hearts. Remember, we talked about this concept of hardened hearts. It wasn't necessarily a stubbornness, like a, I don't want God in my life. It can be that. But it also can just mean just simply not understanding. So we're called to understand, to see. And then secondly, we're called to remember. If, if you look back at this verse, right? He, he's telling them, do you remember what happened, right? Do you not remember and the remembering encourages and helps us to understand, doesn't it? When we remember, when we renew our minds in the truth, then that opens up 
our hearts to receive who God is, to see it. And, and, and I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, because there's actually a sense in which we're to remember some things, but not remember others. Uh, if you remember, I love Philippians chapter 3. It's, it's a great chapter. The whole book of Philippians is just one of my favorites. Philippians chapter 3, though, he's talking about his old life. He's saying, this is how I used to be. I used to have the greatest credentials. He's, I, I was the best Jew, essentially. I was the best religious person. I did everything according to the law. I kept it all. I was essentially almost, by human standards, perfect. That's a, that, that was his testimony. You can read it, verses 2 to 6. And then he also went on. He said, I was so zealous for the things of God that I persecuted the church, even to the point of putting people to death, sentencing them to death. But then he said, but once I came to Christ, I realized that all of that was meaningless. It was worthless. And he says, I, he kind of goes into accounting terms. He says, it was a loss. I, just, I had accounted as a loss. It, it was just a complete loss. But I gained everything. All of my old life, everything before I came to know Jesus Christ, any credentials I thought I had, any righteousness that I thought I had, any goodness, any moral standing with God that I thought I had, it was all a complete loss. None of it mattered. And actually, some of it was he was actually repulsive to God. I mean, he was, he was killing Christians, right? Uh, it was very, very repulsive to God. So even the things that he thought he was doing right, he was doing poorly. But he says, he's like, my goal is to know Jesus so entirely intimate, in, intimately. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says. How many of us can say that? How many of us want to know Christ so intimately, even to the point of sharing in his sufferings? That is our calling, by the way, as Christians. We are called to take up our cross and follow him. So he says, not that I've already reached the goal. Here's my goal. It's to know Christ perfectly, intimately, come to full maturity. He's like, I haven't reached the goal yet. But, because, you know, but I, I make every effort. And then he says, one thing I do, I forget what is behind. That is his old life, his old self. And I reach forward to what is ahead. I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. He says, I remember the cross. I remember the empty tomb. I remember my conversion. And I'm going to just keep pursuing that. I'm going to keep renewing my mind in the truth, pursuing this goal of knowing Christ deeply and intimately. That's the goal of my existence. That's why I exist. That's why I live. And that's our heart as well. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples here. Remember what's true. Remember who I am. Remember what I've done so that you can see, so that you can understand and not have hardened hearts. So church, don't be discouraged. Let's not be people who are discouraged by your own lack of faith, or by your own struggles. You see yourself in the disciples. I hope you do. I hope you can see yourself a little bit in the disciples here. 
where you're just arguing and bickering about who brought the bread and who did this and, you know, wow, we're, not, we're going to be hungry and these kinds of silly things that we think about. Like, have a dose of humility. You're like the disciples. I'm like the disciples here. But don't be discouraged because even though Jesus was a little bit frustrated, he also was patient with them. He was extremely patient. He didn't say, you guys are worthless. I'm kicking you off the boat. I'm going to get some new disciples. Right? At the same time, this is the beautiful thing about Jesus. Church, at the same time, he calls us to an incredible standard. He says, be holy for I am holy. He says, be like me. Take up your cross. Die. Deny yourself. He gives us some really hard callings. And at the same time, he says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden with burdens, and I'll give you rest. And he says, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. And so we have this, this duality with God where it's like, they seem to be opposing, but they're both completely true at the same time. Isn't that beautiful? Because you don't want God to just lower the standards for us because that's not what's best for us. That would actually be foolish of God to do that. He wants what's best for us. We just sang about it. He works all things out for our good. That doesn't mean he just gives you whatever you want. Here, have a million dollars. Here, have a new this. Have that. Have this. Have great health your whole life. That's not what you need. That's not what I need. I need to be holy. That's what I need. And so God does not want to lower the standard for me to make life easier for me so that I can just turn more self-centered. He says, no, I'm going to keep the standard up here, but I'm also going to keep the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness and the patience up here. I'm not going to lower that and say, try harder, you loser. That's not the heart of God. The heart of God is, oh, I love you so dearly. and Would you, would you just try again? I'm with you. I'm rooting you on. Yes, there's a little bit of this. Don't you understand yet? There's some of those moments, right? That's the discipline of God. That's actually a beautiful thing because then you know you're a child of God. When you feel that conviction of sin, when you feel that conviction of, I'm not being very faithful right now, that's because God loves you. It's because he's, he's cheering you on. He's saying, I've got things better for you. I don't want you to sit in the mire of your sin. I want you to get out of that and come to me, experience all that I have for you. So yes, Jesus is grieved over his disciples' immaturity. And he's calling them to understand. He's calling them to maturity. And we are not to stay in immaturity. We are to grow in faithfulness. But always remember that Jesus cares deeply for you. And he's with you. And so we've already seen once today how the physical reality of the teachings of the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, has a spiritual reality in the New Covenant. And now as we transition to the Lord's table, uh, I want us to see it again in, in light of a text that I, that I think would be really significant. Actually, I wanted to spend more time on this text last month when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000. Um, but just for sake of time and whatnot, we didn't. So I thought it's, it's great given that we're celebrating communion and it was right after this, John chapter 6 is where we're going. And I'd actually invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 6 because I don't have it on the screen because it's like 30 verses. Um, so, and, and we're going to read a good, a good bit of them. So John chapter 6, if you don't have a Bible or you don't know where to find one, there, there should be some Bibles scattered under your seats. And so I'd, I'd encourage you to, to everyone have out a Bible if you can or 
If you have a phone, you can, um, you can, get, one, you can get one there. So, yep. <laughs> All right, so John chapter 6. And this, this happens right after the feeding of the 5,000. This is the next day. So the feeding of the 5,000 happens, and then it's the next day. Now, the way that Jews count days, it might be the, the very next day, or it could be the day after, because it said that they went into the boat, there was the walking on the water, and then it's the next day. So it could have already been the next day when it says the next day. Anyways, it's either one or two days later, all that to say. So, um, so, so the next day, Jesus, you know, a crowd comes. Of course, right? What else happens when Jesus arrives on shore? Crowds come. And uh, skip down to verse 26. So they ask the question, verse 25, when did you get here? And Jesus answers, truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Right? You want your belly filled again. You guys just want to be fed again. You guys are just... And notice the theme of of John chapter 6 is all about physical versus spiritual. He's saying, your minds are in the physical realm. And Jesus is constantly in this text taking them to the spiritual. And watch. He says, don't work, this is the first way he does it, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. And so they're like, okay, that doesn't really make sense. So verse 28, they say, what can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. And Jesus replied, this is such a great reply, listen to this. This is the work of God. Church, this is the whole thing. This is the overarching entire work of God for you. This is what it is. That you believe in the one he sent. Period. That's it. He says, here's the work of God. This is what I want you to do. Okay? Not a list of 50 things. Believe in the one that God has sent. That's it. And and Jesus is so patient in this whole conversation. What sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? Right? What are you going to perform? And then they have the audacity to say this. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. I mean, now, now before we just keep slandering this crowd, we've got to understand something about, about you know, life in, in these times. These people literally lived day by day. There was no storehouse of, there was no cupboard, there was no Wegmans. But I know, isn't that incredible? Can you believe that Wegmans didn't exist in, in Israel? Uh, I know, it's mind blowing. Um, they didn't just have storehouse, except for, unless you're the king. You, if you're a, like 90% of the, the, the people, you didn't know where your next, next, next meal would come from. You had to always be on point, working, trading, you know, doing your thing for 12 hours a day in order to eat. And then you'd wake up the next day and do it all over again so that you could make sure to secure food for your family. And, and it seemed like this crowd, they might have lost hope a little bit and just kind of followed Jesus like a, like a bunch of like kind of hippie type people that were just kind of like, oh, okay, this guy gives free bread. I don't have to work. Sweet. He'll just keep giving me bread. That's kind of the feeling we get from the crowd here. Because they're kind of goading them. They're like, hey, well, you know, Moses, he gave, gave us bread, gave our ancestors bread. You did it a little while ago. Can you do it again? 
So Jesus said to him, verse 32, he says, Truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God, again, he's teaching spirit, he's taking them from the physical, he's bringing them to the spiritual. He says, for the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's like, it's not about getting your stomachs filled. It's about belief in me. It's about the one who created you, who was willing to come to your soil and die for you. Jesus is beginning to teach them these things. And by the way, some of these people may have been there at Pentecost and came to faith in Jesus later. They might have been some of the thousands that traveled to that festival and heard Peter and John and all the apostles proclaiming the truth. And so Jesus is setting the, the tone for he's, he's giving them truth, and they, they, didn't res, they didn't respond now, but maybe, just maybe some of them responded later. We don't know. Verse 34. Then they said, Sir, give us this bread always. So the third time, okay, going back to the physical. Give us this bread. They're, they're thinking on, on, on natural terms. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It's not, it's not the physical, he's telling them. It's not about the physical. It's, it's me. It's me and what I'm going to do for you. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Verse 37, everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Amen. You come to Jesus, you say, I believe in you, Jesus. He will never cast you out. Uh, verse 38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, in case you forgot, that I should lose none of those that he has given me, but I should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see Jesus repeating himself here? The people are repeating themselves in their physical, natural-mindedness, their self-centeredness, and Jesus keeps on bringing them, no, 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 it's not about the physical. It's about me. It's about who I am and what I'm going to do for you. And so you can imagine they, they didn't really enjoy that little discourse from Jesus. So verse 41, therefore the Jews started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Again, right? And, and again, we have, to be, we have to be cautious not to just blast this crowd. These people are so dumb. No, no. They, their eyes were not opened. They didn't understand who Jesus was yet. They were so stuck in their natural mindedness. And such were some of us. Right? Such were we until Jesus opened our eyes. We saw everything in relationship to our, our natural selves and to the physical realm, the temporal realm. There was no sense of relationship with God. There was no understanding of the things of God until God opened our eyes. And so Jesus starts getting a little bit testy with them. Stop complaining among yourselves. Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And for the third time, I will raise him up on the last day. It is written the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. He's telling them. He's like, 
I'm fulfilling this prophecy. God himself is in your midst teaching you. Everyone who has listened and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. So now he's, he's beating them on their level. He's like, okay, you want to talk about physical bread? Let's talk about physical bread. They ate the manna and it didn't mean anything. It was, it was a temporary solution to a temporary problem. Jesus says, I am the eternal pro- solution to the eternal problem. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And here Jesus is saying, he's giving them a clue as to how it is that he's the bread of life. How is it that he's going to fulfill this spiritual truth? And he's foreshadowing what he's about to do on the cross. He said, it's my flesh. And it's the very thing that we come to the table to celebrate. It's the death of Jesus Christ. We remember this. We remember because he's our only hope. We remember because we have no life apart from his death. Because in dying for us, he stepped into the gap between us and God, and he became the bridge. And he took on our entire sin debt, the entire account of our guilt before God, the guilty judgments that we had before God, he says, I am going to take that so that you would be pronounced innocent. My righteousness will cover you completely. That's what Jesus did for us on the cross. And he, I mean, he continues, verse 53, I tell you, unless you eat this, uh, so because they, they, they said, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Again, you're just like, what is going on, right? Like for the fifth time, these people... They just have their heads stuck in the physical. And Jesus is like, no, no, no. I I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, once again, he's alluding to what he's going to do for them. And drink his blood. You do not have life in yourself. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. You can see how he's using physical language to speak of these truths. Just as the living Father has sent me, I live because of the Father. So the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. It's not physical. He's like, it's, it's spiritual, it's eternal. This is the one who eats. The one who eats this bread will live forever. And in so doing, that last sentence, he, he creates a bookend, doesn't he? To what he said in the beginning. In verse 29, he says, This is the work of God that you believe in the one he sent. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He's, he's, he's bookending his, his statements here. And of course, we, we read the rest of the story. We won't read it, but many of, his, many of those people, not just those people, but even many of his disciples. So we actually get some extra context here that there are more than just the 12 here that have been following Jesus. Elsewhere, we, we know that there's up to 72, maybe even more than that, 
that were following Jesus at, at given times of his ministry. Many of them turned back and no longer followed Jesus because they said, this is hard teaching. And then Jesus turns to the 12. He says, well, you don't want to go away too, do you? And Peter, you know, as much, as much flack as we give Peter, come on, we got to give him some props here. He says, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we come to the communion table. Um, Dan, uh, Dan and uh, Josh, would you guys uh, come? And we're going to pass the plates here in a minute. We come to the table, all of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ, we come. You say, I believe in Jesus Christ. That's the work of God. You can come. Not you don't come, we'll come to you <laughs> with the elements. But this is time for worship. This is time for remembrance. This is time for us to say, thank you, God, for saving me. Thank you for giving me eternal life. And maybe, maybe just some of you are still in a place where you're like, I, I don't know. I, it sounds, what you're saying is really great, Kevin. It sounds uh, amazing, maybe even too good to be true. I would encourage you, cry out to God. Take this time to have a conversation with God. This is time for you to pray, to worship, to think, meditate. But maybe some of you this morning need to simply look to God and say, God, I trust in you. I want to do your works. I believe in you. I'm done resisting. I'm done thinking about myself all the time. I'm going to give my life to you. And you're still going to think about yourself a lot. But you're going to be thinking about God a whole lot more. And he's going to come into your life and change you. He's going to transform you. And then you get to live in this calling to walk in him day in and day out. And so we come to the communion table and we remember Jesus because that's what he said for us to do. He says, do this in remembrance of me. When he had that, that last meal with his disciples, that's what he told them. And so that's what we do. We do it once a month, and we're going to pass the bread first, then we're going to pass the juice, then we're going to take an offering for our missions and for those who are in need around us. We call that our benevolence fund. And so let's just take a moment to pray, meditate, have conversation with God as you hold the bread in your hands. And for those of you here today where you're feeling convicted of sin or maybe you have sin in your life or you have tension in a relationship with somebody today, I would encourage you, even, even though it might feel weird or something like that, um, have a conversation before you take the elements because we are called to not have this time in an unworthy way. And so if there's something in your heart that you have something against somebody that's, that's, that hasn't been forgiven, or that there's something that you are bitter or angry about somebody else with, I think the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord is saying, you know what, maybe just, maybe just hold off from having communion until you get that right. And you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He talks about a situation where the church, they were not waiting for each other to eat the meal, and they were, they were vying for power and position, and it was just a mess. And they were being inconsiderate even to the point where some people lost their life from it. And so Paul says we should properly judge ourselves so that we won't be judged. So make this time also a time of 
judging yourself and seeking the Lord and asking him for forgiveness. And know the, the biblical promise of if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So take this time and pray. Seek God's face. First Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' body was given to us and, and broken for us on that cross, bloodied and beaten and bruised and mocked and scorned, crucified, pierced. Um, but he shed his blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, God says there must have been a sacrifice in order to cleanse us of sin. And so when we hold this cup in our hands, we remember what it cost Jesus to secure our salvation. This is a symbol, church, of what Jesus did for us, that he shed his blood to establish a new covenant with us. 
And it's even more than that. Not only is it a symbol of the the covenant that Jesus established with us, but this covenant is a two-way covenant. Jesus did all the work and we take and we drink, which symbolizes that we receive his grace and we agree that we will live for him. We agree with him. God, you have my life. Lord, you are my master. And so we make this a time of worship and remembrance of Jesus, what he did for us on that cross. We also make this a time of rededication and commitment to Jesus, that he has our hearts. So I would encourage you to also make that your prayer. continues in the same way he also took the cup after supper and said this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me Paul continues to say For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so we just shared the gospel with one another. We just said, we are the church of God. We stand on what Jesus Christ did for us. It's all about his blood. It's all about his body that was given for us, his sacrifice that has forgiven our sins. So we praise him for that. We're going to pray, and then these guys are going to pass the plates. This offering uh, goes towards our missions and or our benevolence fund. So when you give to this offering particularly, that's where it's going to go. If you intend to give to the general fund, uh, there's two uh, wooden boxes in the back and in the front here. You're welcome to put in your general fund offerings there, uh, as well online at wheatlandchurch.com slash give, I think where you can give and set up reoccurring giving if you desire. So let's pray, and then we'll pass the plates. God, thank you for this time. You are so good, and we worship you. We thank you for what you've accomplished. We thank you that you take our frailty, you take our selfishness and our, our physical-mindedness, and you awaken us, and you've 
opened our eyes to see your glorious truths. And I pray that you would continue to do that. Holy Spirit, continue just to lead us in this transformation process that we would renew our minds day in and day out in what you say is true. And so God, guide us, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name.